Good morning, brothers and sisters. What a beautiful day for us to all get together here and worship. Today's reading, we're in Mark 12. Whose son is the Christ? Verses 35. That's where it starts. 35 to 37. Here we go. Whose son is Christ? And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Blessed be the, the word of God. All praise and glory goes to him. Good morning, and thank you uh, for being here today. Thank you for being able to make it, and thank you to all those who are online listening. We know we have some people that are listening across the country. I believe it's New Mexico, is that right, John? Yeah, in New Mexico they're listening to. So thank you for uh, being with us today. We're certainly glad for your attendance, and your attendance to the Word of God. Last week, John preached, the other John, preached on the passage, uh, he preached through verses 20, uh, 34, he preached on the passages where Jesus was talking about how you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And second to this, second to this commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The interesting part about this passage that John preached on last week, and he gave us a number of things to do about focusing on God's Word and learning God's Word through that. But interestingly enough, is the end of that passage, we have the man who approaches Jesus, the scribe said to him in verse 32, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. We have that from the Shema in Deuteronomy, the teaching, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then in 33 it says, And to love him with all the heart, and with all understanding, and with all strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much, much, and I'll say much, much, much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. I want to say just a few words on that. We're not re-preaching a sermon from last week because it was, it was a good sermon last week. But we want to take this time and we want to, because it links into what we're going to talk about now. And the words of that scribe links into what we're going to talk about now. When he references the Shema, we should remember that that is about teaching your children to let them know the Word of God, to bind it on your forehead, to write it on the doorpost, to teach it as you walk down the wayside and along the road, to teach God's Word to your children, to teach them the commandments so that they would know. This scribe who comes to Jesus at this teaching rightly says that it is more important than all the burnt offerings. We remember from the Old Testament that it says at a number of places, it tells us that God doesn't desire the blood of bulls and goats. 
What He desires is the heart of man to be turned towards Him. The blood of bulls and goats points to the problem of sin in our lives. It points to the problem of the ugliness of sin that pervades us. The scribe here speaking about the heart change that God desires. He says, right teacher, you have truly stated he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus in 34 saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Think about that. The questions aren't asked anymore. The challenges aren't there anymore. There's a shifting and a changing that occurs here with Jesus' ministry. Now, there's a couple ways we could go into this passage. But I'm going to start in John 2. Verse 24 and 25. John 2, 24 and 25. Keep this in mind. John 2, 24 and 25. It says this, But Jesus, on His part, was not entrusting Himself to them. Here's the key phrase here. For He knew all men. And because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows what is in our hearts, what is in our minds. Keep that in mind. He knew that when he was speaking to this scribe who came up to him and said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. One of the problems we find is that the people loved everything else but God. There's idolatry rampant in our world. Hence, the greatest commandment was to love your God with everything and then love your neighbor. You're to love your neighbor as God loves. That while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, remember that if you don't know Jesus, you're an enemy of God. Christ died for us. That's what it looks like to love your neighbors. A self-sacrificial love for your enemies. It's essential that we remember this. We remember that Jesus knows the heart of men, the minds of men, as we move into this next set of verses. Jesus no longer being questioned, but he is the one asking a question. We find out that the Pharisees are still there with him. If we were to read this parallel account in Matthew, we're going to find out that the Pharisees are there, still there in front of Jesus when he asks these questions. It's in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to go there in a little bit. But let's first read Psalm 110 because this is the psalm that Jesus is using in this teaching. We're taking a slow start here before we get into this passage. Psalm 110 tells us this. Written by David, says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. For your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn 
and will not change his mind. You, this Lord, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is your right hand and he shall shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We've talked about this psalm before. There might be some slight variations in wording in the ESV or the NIV that you may be reading or the King James, but it all is the same, saying the same thing about this enthronement of a king. A royal psalm is what this is. A specifically, a psalm about the coming of the Messiah. The one who was spoken about in Genesis 3.15, the one that would crush the head of Satan. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, the Pharisees are around him. It tells us that in Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees are there. He began to say to them, how is it that the scribe, that this scribe, the scribes teach, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Why is it that the scribes say this? Why is it that they teach that the Christ is this son of David? The Pharisees, the learned ones of the law, the learned ones of the word are standing there. He has just addressed one and said that your answer is correct about God, about God being one, about loving your neighbors, about loving the Word of God. He said, you are so close to the kingdom. And that man is standing there too. That scribe is standing there too. And the Pharisees are standing there also. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? Tell me about this son of David, Jesus is saying to them. On the heels of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And loving your neighbor as yourself. We want to understand here that when we read the scriptures, Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one. And Christos means the anointed one in Greek. So hence Christ, Christos and Messiah are the same terms. Mean the same things, just in two different languages. Therefore, Christ then is the transliteration of the Greek Christos, or anointed one. So we could say here, how is it that the scribes say that the anointed one is the son of David? The issue that we find... We probably saw it back when we talked about the Herodians a little bit a few weeks ago. Is there's a little bit of a nationalistic problem that we have here in Jerusalem with viewing this Messiah. We don't want to blame them too bad. They're under Roman occupation. Their nation is controlled by a bunch of pagans that are demanding taxes from them that have installed a Herod in place that is that is basically a Jew in name only. They are under oppression to a degree, depending if you don't play by the Romans' rules. They see this Messiah, this anointed one, as one that will restore 
Israel to its rightful place. That will get rid of the Romans. You can't have them anymore. It's a very myopic view, a very narrow view of what the Messiah is and what He will do. They see the Messiah as a conquering king like David. Of the line of David. But Jesus says, how is it that they say that this Christ is the son of David? Now he's not giving away the whole story yet. He's using inductive reasoning with them. So he is going to give them certain information and they are going to be able to deduce what it is that, they're, that, that he's leading them to. He's not going to give them the answer right out of the gate. In fact, he's, not, he's just showing them something about the Scripture that they should already know. That we're going to know a whole lot more of when we're done today. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. I'm going to borrow that from the Just Thinking podcast. We turn pages here. We look at our Bibles here. We find where the Scripture's at. We want to become more and more biblical in what we do. Now, some of you might be using electronic devices, and that's fine too. But we want to look at the Scripture. We uh, don't just believe, don't look at me and listen to me with an open mind. Listen to me and look at me with an open Bible and see if what I'm saying is true. That's what we want here. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Starting in verse 12. God's covenant with David. This is what the title comes under. When your days are complete. In other words, when David is done. When your days are over. When you have, when you have died. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now, when we talk about the ancient times, when we talk about the way they talked about descendants, we're going to throw this into it. So obviously, my sons, I refer to them as my sons. But if they were to have sons and their sons' sons were to have sons and their sons' sons' sons were to have sons, and so up down the lines, that when we speak in the ancient terms, they would also be considered my sons way down the line. That's the way we would talk about it. That's why the way they talk about it. That those, those men, progeny, that are way down the line are also considered my sons. So we keep that in mind. How is it that this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one is called David's son? That's the question. And here we're getting the answer. It says there, it says, I will raise up, after you're dead, a descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. This descendant male, considered your son, I will raise up well after you, and I will establish this male heir's kingdom. Now, this male heir in verse 13 says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
okay? We're going to take that forever, and we're going to stick that over here. We're going to keep it in mind. Because we're going to come back to that. But I'm going to establish this kingdom forever. That's what God is going to do. This is a promise of God. God doesn't fail in His promises. Remember that. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. We're going to pause there. A messianic prophecy of this anointed one taking on the iniquity of men. Taking on the sins of men. 15. But my loving kindness, kindness, that's that Hebrew word, we, we, you see it all over the place, and that's the only reason why I mention it. Hesed, meaning my loving kindness, my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, this error is going to be different. There's something much different about this one. I will never stop loving my son, who I am establishing this kingdom forever. It says, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you, 16, your house in your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So this heir from the line of David, he doesn't establish when that is going to come. We don't need to look into the numerology in Daniel either. Okay, let's not do that. That can be very distracting. And we miss Jesus when we do stuff like that. But this heir that is coming is going to have this kingdom and a throne forever. 17, in accordance with all these words and all the visions, so Nathan spoke to David. So God's word through Nathan, a prophecy of God's promises through Nathan to David about what is going to happen. A review. He will build a house in the Lord's name, this heir. He will establish a throne and a kingdom forever. God will be his father. He will be the father's son. He will be punished for man's iniquity. His house and his kingdom will endure forever. A kingdom that will endure forever. Now, we want to jump forward one verse in Mark chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus asked the question, doesn't wait for a response. If we look at, well, let's look at Matthew. We'll just give it to you. Matthew chapter 22. In the Synoptic Gospels, a parallel account says in verse 42, Matthew twenty-two forty-two, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Back to Mark chapter 12, verse 36. And David himself said, to, said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath 
your feet. Now, we could read over that and not think a whole lot about that. But there's something that is going on here with these words by the Holy Spirit of David when he writes this royal song. There's something about this. So if my son, 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 son are considered my son, I am greater than he that comes well down the line for me. Yet David is saying in here that this Lord is saying to my Lord, we've already established that it's the son of David who is doing this. How can David's son, his, <coughs> his heir way down the Lord line, be David's Lord? How is that possible for this one to be born well after David to be greater than David? This is the problem. It's not a problem for Jesus, but it's a problem for how the scribes have been interpreting the Scriptures. There's something about this that doesn't sound merely like a man. Just merely a man that we would understand it as. Listen to these descriptions from Scripture about what this Messiah, this anointed one from the line of David, what he is going, what these descriptors are of him. It's a fairly long list. Excuse me, I don't have the scripture up there because it would, we would spend all day just going through the scripture. I've just pulled out some of these. These are not all the descriptions of the Messiah, not all the descriptions of the anointed one, but listen to this list. And we think of it, how could David's heir be David's Lord? David was a king. How could David see this heir as greater than himself? So here we go. The descriptions from Scripture of the Anointed One, of the Messiah, of the Christ. He is a wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is eternal Father. He is Prince of Peace. He is a shoot of the branch of Jesse. His roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He will have the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or his ears hear. He will judge the hearts of men. He will judge this. He will decide with fairness. The rod of his mouth will strike the earth. His breath will slay the wicked. Righteousness and faithfulness will be like belts to him. He will bring peace. He will be a righteous branch from David. He will reign as a wise king. He will do justice and righteousness in the land. He will be called the Lord of our righteousness. He will raise them up and execute justice and righteousness on earth. He will always sit on the throne of the house of Israel. He will be the one true shepherd. He will be a prince. He will be a king over all and they will follow him. Those that follow him will follow his ordinances. He is good. And we know that only God himself is good. This is the description of the Messiah, the anointed one. This is what we find in Scripture. And that's not all the location. That's just a few Scriptures. If you were to look at those verses I pulled those from, you'd find a whole bunch of other things. I had to cut off the list at some point because we can't be here all day. This Christ, this anointed one, this Messiah. Let me pause for a second. I'll say this. When David says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord says, said to my Lord, he is saying something more about this heir. That this heir is more than just a man. 
that this man is greater than he. Remember when we read in Psalm 110, he said that he will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, without beginning, without end. A priestly line, not of the Levites. Something more and something greater that we see here. That David, by the Holy Spirit, is writing in Psalm 110. When Jesus said to those scribes and those Pharisees that were there, He said, how is it that this Christ, this anointed one, this one of these descriptions, this one is described as God Himself, is the Son of David. How could this this person, this heir that's coming, be the Son of David? This is so much greater than any man ever was. How could it possibly be? This one, this heir that will reign forever, without end, sitting on the throne. And the man whom he said that the kingdom was close to him, the kingdom of God, is still standing there, listening to these words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies underneath your feet. How is this person a son? The scribes, the Pharisees, they were, they were, they were just putting manhood just a man to this, this description of the Messiah. A limited view of who this person would be. The conquering king that would come in, and at this point in time, because maybe it's right to say this, we tend to think about Jesus if we're not studying the Scriptures, if we just stay on milk, if we're not getting the solid meat of the Scriptures, we tend to think about Jesus solving my problems right now. I got a problem with a coworker, a problem with the job. I don't like the paint at the church. So hopefully Jesus will fix that now that I believe in Jesus. We think of it right now and here. What we do when we find the scriptures that Jesus is, is He can give you a better life now, and I guarantee He will give you a better life now if you live knowing Christ, regardless of what happens here. But there's so much more to who Jesus is and what He does, what, who the Christ is. Their limited viewpoint is solving their problems right now. Their limited viewpoint by the Pharisees is solving the issue right now. And the issue is we've got Rome in our backyard. we got Rome controlling everything. we got Rome taking money from us to build Roman things. We've got these issues before us. This Messiah is going to come in and He's going to solve these problems. He's going to be just like David and he's going to come in and he's going to raise the sword and get rid of these people. That's not what the Scripture tells us about Jesus, who is the Christ. That's not what he tells us about the Messiah. When we look at those words in Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 110, go back there for a moment, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, in your Bibles you'll see this, That first Lord, the Lord, should be all capitalized. Yahweh is what that translation is right there. And then it says, and then it says, the Lord, cap all cap on all caps says to my Lord, and then it says, that is a capital L with small letters after it. Now they could be just smaller, full capitalized letters, but 
in a different relation to that first Lord. So the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai is what it is, says to my Lord, so there's something different going on there. But Jesus is pointing out in the plain language of the Scripture, He's saying something more about this heir of David. Jesus is saying to them, don't you know who the Messiah is? That the Messiah is greater than what you think it is. The Messiah, Messiah, yes, is David's son, but so much greater than that. So much more than that. Slowly leading them through the Scriptures, but but He purposely leaves the words in there until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. The plain language that this Messiah is also a judge. This one who's going to come and he's going to sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. The one who has sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever. The one who sits at the right hand of the Father forever is also the judge. Those enemies would be the ones that deny who the Messiah is. The ones who deny what he will do. The ones who will deny that he came as a, from the line of Jesse, from David's lineage. Revelation 14, starting verse 17, gives us this description of the judge. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. Right. The vine of the earth would be those that don't follow Jesus, that don't believe in the Christ as the Lord, This is what happens to them. Remember that Psalm 110 says they will be, the enemies will be under His feet. It says these words, So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200, 200 miles. Keep this in mind as we talk about who the Christ is, who the Messiah is. There is no middle ground. You are either in Jesus or you're not. There is no sitting on the fence. You are either found in Christ or you're not. Keep that in mind. Jesus purposely points it out here, what this Lord is like. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Full destruction. Cast into eternal damnation. Keep that in mind. That those who are anti-Christ will have eternal destruction. Then verse 37, it says, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? It says that the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now, just because people enjoyed listening to him didn't mean they believed what he was saying. But there are certainly some that are there that would believe the words that he's saying here. How can this Messiah be both Lord and Son? Jesus 
leading them with an authority that only he has through the scripture, speaking differently than the ones than the ones that are in the temple have spoken before. We see that throughout the scriptures, the authority that Jesus speaks with. That Jesus is telling them that this person, this Messiah, this anointed one, is not just a man, but he's also God, far greater than David would be. That's why David, when he uses the word the Lord, Yahweh, the Father, says, to my Lord, this one that's greater than me, the Son, He says, I will put these under your feet. You will sit at my right hand. Jesus, you see, is the one who defeats, not the Romans, but He defeats the strong man. He defeats Satan. He ties him up and takes back those who are His. He is from the line of David on both sides of His family. You can trace them back. If we go back to Matthew, we see the lineage of David that is clearly when Matthew says, it says in the beginning, in the Greek you would read it as this, it would say the genesis of Jesus, the beginning of Jesus. And you see the line traced the whole way back. We see it him in the line of David. This anointed one, this Messiah. We see Jesus as the son of David. We see the people testifying to it throughout His ministry. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. Matthew 9, 27 says this. says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed Him, crying out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. They certainly couldn't see any features on His face that would look like David. They were blind. Yet they recognized Him as the Son of David as an heir of David, as a male heir of David. Look at Mark, uh, Look no, look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 23. 12.23, it says this, All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Jesus comes into the world, the incarnate one, enfleshed, God enfleshed on earth, the divine one on earth. He is doing these things that only God can do. He is forgiving sin, healing in a way that nobody could, has ever, that, that only God Himself can heal, that we see like in examples of the Old Testament. We see Him restoring, as we've spoken before, not, not making a crippled hand work, but making a new crippled hand, a new hand. We see Him healing people, taking the blind that they can see that they've never seen before. We see them raising up a crippled man who has never walked to walking before before them and forgiving his sins. What is easier to do? A crippled man walk or forgive somebody's sins? Get up and walk and take your mat with you. These crowds are there. They're amazed. Look, it says the crowds were amazed. It says, and we're saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Is this the one? Is this the anointed one? Is this the Christ? Is this the one that the Scripture has foretold of? Is this the prophecies that there's well over 300 of in the Scripture? Is this the one? Is this the Christ come before us? 
And don't forget Mark chapter 11, verse 10. There are a number of other passages, but these are the ones that I've chosen on. Mark chapter 11, verse 10. The triumphal entry. Listen, verse 9, it says, those who were in front and those who were following, remember, this is, this is Palm Sunday. Those who were in front and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Crowds recognizing him as the heir to the throne of David. Boy, are they going to be amazed in just a few days. So people are seeing him as the heir to the throne, but they're probably not quite seeing everything yet. They're not seeing him probably not as 100% God, 100% man. Jesus coming at a specific time, a specific place, in flesh. Jesus, excuse me, lives as a man for approximately 33 years. A full life. A life of active obedience to God's law. Fulfilling all the commandments. before He takes the passive obedience on the cross and takes upon the sin for us. Jesus standing before these men, speaking about Himself, they not recognizing that the Son of God is standing in front of Him, the cross looming behind outside the temple, His Father's house, He will be taken out like a criminal, a sinner, the one who is without sin, taken out there, sinless, beard plucked out, crown of thorns smashed to his head, scourged, flesh ripped off his back. We know that we can see the bones and whatnot in his body. He willingly will go out there in just a few days. He will carry that cross till he can't bear it any longer till Simon the Cyrene takes it for him. Yet Jesus walks to the cross, the sinless one to become sin for us, stood up, nailed to a tree, treated as a criminal, the one who the people chose Barabbas, a murderer, instead of him to be released, as was Pilate's, uh, as what Pilate would do, give them the opportunity. The sinless one nailed to a tree outside the city, outside the holy city of Jerusalem, outside the temple at his father's house, in the place, in place for us. The sins of the elect imputed on him. He had the propitiatory substitutionary atonement, the Prince of Peace, the heir to the everlasting throne, the only true judge, the one in whom your and my sins rest on that bloodstained cross, is this one that David speaks about in his psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, The Father says to Jesus, 
You will sit at my right hand until I put your enemies underneath your feet. Oh, we see that. They see it happening. The disciples see it on that day. Approximately what we would say that 53 days, 54 days from now, we'll see him rise into the clouds to be seated at the right hand of the Father, where he sits right now. Now I'm getting into my conclusion before I even want to, but you have to. That's where Jesus is right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all believers. We talked about this in Sunday school class. Right now, Jesus interceding for you and me as believers. Interceding for you and me as, as we are forgiven sinners that are still sinning. That is where Jesus is at right now. On the throne. Seated. Interceding for us. That picture of the work of the cross that He is going to do is done. There is no more to be done with regard to your sin. It has been taken care of. You are now justified, that legal term, before a righteous and a holy God. Justified, just as if I never sinned. But not only are you justified in the legal term, but you are forgiven and brought into a relationship with God because of that work. So we see these questions that Jesus had asked. We'll read this, read this again. It's short. We can do it. It says, And Jesus began to say, he, as He taught the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the Son of David? Oh, they say it because it says it in the Scriptures. But then he says, but David said, said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, hold it, how could this heir of mine be greater than me? Well, it's obvious because he's more than me. He's more than a man. He's from the line of Melchizedek. He is an unending throne. He is the God-man who comes. 100% God, 100% man. He will sit at the right hand of the Father until I put your enemies under beneath your feet. 37, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? He is his son because he is incarnate through the line that we see through both David and Mary. Oh, excuse me, both Joseph and Mary. We see him through that line, but he is incarnate, born of a woman via the Holy Spirit, the incarnate, the God-man. This was asked of the scribes, the Pharisees, those standing there, that they might recognize the Messiah, the Christ. The question is like this. Who do you say the Messiah is? Is He the one who is from the seed of a woman? Is He the one who crushes Satan? Is He the one of the root of Jesse? Is He the heir of David's throne? Is He the one who will reign forever? Is He the one whose enemies will be a footstool for His feet? Is He the one who will be forsaken by men? Is He the one who will be crushed for our iniquities? Is He the one who is led like a lamb to the slaughter? Is He the one who was scourged? Is He the one who will, was nailed to the cross? Is He the one who knew no sin that became sin for us? Is He the one who rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father? Is He the one who binds the strong man and rescues His people? Those are the questions we all must answer in the affirmative. Say, yes, He is that one. You see, we are all unique in God's creation as man, as humankind. You see, it's peculiar to us that we are never-dying souls that will be going to a never-ending eternity. Think about that for a second. 
never dying souls going to a never ending eternity. There are two places that never ending eternity is either in the glory and presence of God the Father and Jesus Christ, or it's not. And it's the pit of eternal damnation and fire. Never dying souls going to a never ending eternity. To know things about Jesus is not enough. There are many people that know lots about Jesus, far more than I do or anybody in this room do, that can, that can tell you probably the clothes he wore and where he lived and the kind of shoes that he, the sandals that he wore and what kind of work he did. In the time frames he lived at and exactly where he was born at, they could tell you all those things, but they don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They could even say he's a good teacher. Look at all the nice things he said. How he challenged the people. And he healed people too. He was a good guy. But they don't know him as Lord and Savior. They don't know him on the throne. They don't know him as the one whose enemies will be trod under his feet. Trodden under his feet. They don't know him as the one on the winepress of God's wrath against those who hate Him. And here's the deal. If you don't know Jesus as Lord, then you hate Him. And you are found in enmity to God. And that is not a place where you want to be. To think He was a good teacher is not enough. We need to know Him as Lord. Because it is important to me that you know where your never-ending eternity is going to be located at. This world can pass away in a moment. I had an uncle that passed away yesterday that was a surprise to us. And there's people that are dying right now that are surprised to their families. There's people that are dying right now that have been brought up in Christian homes whose parents or brothers or siblings know Jesus, and they don't, and they're dying right now. And nobody is having the courage to tell them who Jesus is. I pray that we have the courage to tell people who Jesus is. And that He is my Lord and Savior. And I might not be able to know all the verses in here, or the doctrine's great, but I'm going to tell you that He is the one who saves and nobody else does. That He is the Lord that says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That He is the one who is on a throne that will endure forever. He is the one that bore my sins on a blood-stained cross that I didn't deserve. That's who I want to be able to have the courage to tell people. And i got to tell you, I have been afraid at times. We all do. Sometimes it takes a call to a brother or sister in Christ to, get, to help us with our courage to tell people. To tell people the truth. You can be so close, like that man who is close to the kingdom of God. You can be close. And still miss it. You don't want to be there. And if you are close to this day and you don't know Jesus, I come talk to one of us. Let's pray about it. Let's let, let's let's speak about it. But I want to assume that everybody in this room is a believer in Jesus. I want to assume that everybody in this room has, has is following Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we should find great hope in these passages. We should look at that and say. Of course He's the Son of David, and of course He is the Lord of David, for He is God. Of course I know that, that these enemies will be trod under the feet, but we should be in the place of that. We should be those ones that that mission field is out there for everybody that hates Jesus. That is our mission field, that nobody should go to hell willingly. 
that they should have to claw their ways over us, that they should have to pry our hands off of them, that we should be dragging them into the kingdom of God as best as we can. That's where we want to be. That's the type of believers we want to be. We want to be those ones that are barring their pathway from getting into hell. Say, no man, no sir, no brother, no sister, no father, no mother, do not go this way, turn back. There is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The one who went to the cross. The 100% God-man. That's where we want to stand. That's where our hope is, is at. That God, that Jesus is on the throne right now, interceding for us in those places. That's where we want to be. We want to bar their pathway. We want to grab them by the ankles. We want to drag them back away from their, their, the pathway into hell that they're going. Because we have the hope. And this is not a hope that is lost. This isn't a hope that, well, I hope X, Y, and Z team wins today. It's not that hope. It is a promised hope. It is a foregone conclusion that this is what happens. That Jesus reigns on that throne right now. Right now for us. And He will reign forevermore. And if the Lord tarries, and if He doesn't come back today, that we had the courage to tell others who Jesus is and point them to our Lord and Savior. For those who believe in Christ can never truly be hurt by anything here because He, Jesus, is on the throne. Remember that. He is on the throne. And the large crowd enjoyed listening to Him. Let's pray. Glorious and Heavenly Father, thank You for this day and thank You for all who can make it today. Let's uh, please be with them. See them home safely. Please give us the courage to speak Your words, speak the words of truth in a world that is more and more turning towards lies and falsities. Please give us the courage to tell the people what the great things that You have done and Your promises. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. I'm not singing. <laughs> if you would, uh, stay.